Good morning. It is good to see you all here. This morning we are going to begin the epistle of 2 Peter. And then you will have to retain what you've learned this morning for a couple of weeks. Because, God willing, David Morris will be standing here next week. Then the conference in Gladeville runs Tuesday night through Friday night. If you can get over there, by all means do it. I will be teaching during the day on the doctrines of grace. Roger Skeppel will be teaching in the evenings on the doctrines of grace. I'm uh, always happy whenever I get to go over to Gladeville. They always treat us so, so very well over there. And anytime my name is said in the same sentence as Roger Skeppel, I'm grateful. So, Second Peter, everybody there? We're going to do our introduction to Second Peter this morning, and we'll see how far into it we actually get. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the epistle of Second Peter, because it is one of the more controversial books in the New Testament. Not really for any significant reason, but just because critics like to find anything that they can glom onto in order to try to say that the New Testament is not reliable literature. The reality is that as you look back at the earliest Christian writers, you find no direct references to 2 Peter during the first two centuries. When I say two centuries, I'm talking about 0 to 100 and 100 to 200. Those are the first two centuries of the A.D. period. During that time, there were no direct references to 2 Peter, but that's an argument from silence, and arguments from silence I don't find particularly convincing. There are a lot of reasons why there is this dearth of direct references to 2 Peter, but there is also a lot of external and internal evidence that it actually was written by the Apostle Peter and belongs in the canon. At the risk of boring you, let me give you just a little bit of church history. As early as the 200s, 253 is when Origen died, as early as that, Origen noted that there was some doubt concerning the true identity of the author of 2 Peter. During the 4th century, the great church historian Eusebius, who lived from about 260 to 340, listed 2 Peter alongside 2 and 3 John and the book of James as books whose canonicity was under dispute. So Eusebius noted that there's no long line of church tradition that seemed to support 2 Peter. But Jerome, the 346 to 420, included 2 Peter in his very well-known translation of the Bible, which is known as the Latin Vulgate. He included 2 Peter, so he felt that it was canonical. So therefore, there was a, a separation of opinion in the early church councils as they settled on what the canon of the New Testament would be, but as is obvious, Second Peter was ultimately accepted as part of the New Testament canon. Now, part of the reason that there was some question about it, aside from the fact that there were no real early direct attestations to Peter, one of the reasons that people questioned its inclusion in the canonicity of the New Testament is specifically because there were several letters floating around at that time that were ascribed supposedly to Peter, but they were actually Gnostic scripture. There was no direct evidence that Peter actually wrote it. You can find, if you look up the Gnostic scripture, you can find the Apocalypse of Peter, you can find the Gospel of Peter, you can find the Acts of Peter. And so anything with the name Peter on it was under extra scrutiny. So there was some doubt originally about Petrine authorship. Uh, also, because it is a very short book, it's only three chapters and really more like two and a half. I don't know why they decided to make three chapters out of this book. It's a very short book and Peter died quite directly after writing it, very soon after. 
So Peter wasn't around to attest that he had actually written it. And so there was, again, controversy about whether he had written it. So why is it in the canon? Why did ultimately the church authorities and early church councils decide that it did belong in the canon of the New Testament? Well, it's because of the amount of internal evidence. In other words, as you look at it, From a scholarly perspective, you're going to see that there are just certain indications that it actually did come from the Apostle Peter. Now, when you read the critics of 2 Peter, you will read first off that they'll say the language of 1 Peter, which we do believe came from the Apostle Peter, the language from 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the writing style, the mode of Greek is different. But as you may recall, when we read the end of 1 Peter last week, that Peter takes the time to tell us that Silvanus actually wrote 1 Peter. He was the amanuensis. He was the secretary who actually did the writing. It's Peter's dictation. It's Peter's theology. But it was written down by Silvanus. This was a very common thing that happened in the New Testament, that people would hire amanuensis in order to write documents, letters, things like that. So chances are the difference in language between 1st and 2nd Peter is no more complicated than the fact that Peter had a different amanuensis. And that would be why the language is slightly different. In the 4th century, the Petrine authorship of 2nd Peter was finally strongly affirmed. Two of the great theologians of the early church, Athanasius and Augustine, considered 2 Peter to be canonical. The council at Laodicea, which is A.D. 372, included the epistle in the canon of Scripture. Jerome placed 2 Peter in the Latin Vulgate, which I mentioned, that's about 400 A.D., and also the great third council of Carthage, A.D. 397, right around that same period, recognized the intrinsic authority and the worth of 2 Peter and formally affirmed that it was written by the Apostle Peter, despite the fact that they could prove that the other Gnostic scripture was not written by Peter. So how do we know that? How do we conclude that? Let me give you some of the internal evidence. Even though there are stylistic differences between the two letters, as I mentioned, Jerome himself explained that the difference in style can easily be attributed to the fact that Peter most likely used a different amanuensis, a different writer. So if Jerome is right, the differences in style are no greater than would be expected, considering that there's different subject matter in each of them, and so there's different language in each of them. But the interesting part, and I hope it's been interesting up till now, (laughs) if not, I can tap dance while I tell you all this, But the really interesting, and that would be interesting. (laughs) I'd pay to see that. What's interesting is even though the two letters are different in their writing style than each other, they both contain, now follow along with me, you're going to learn a quick bit of Greek this morning, hapax legomena. I think I've said that correctly. Steve, do you have another pronunciation of it? That sounded good to me. Now, to me, whenever I say hapax legomena, I think do 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 exactly. Hagomena do 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 do. Never mind. Hapax legomena. All that means is all that Greek phrase means. Hapax simply means only. The legomena part of the word means a saying or a word. So, hapax legomena are words that are only used once in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are only 686 of what we call hapax legomena. That that shows up 686 times. But 1 Peter contains 62 of those, and 2 Peter has 54 of those, which is more proportionally than any other New Testament book of the same size. So really, if you compare that, the differences are not between 1st and 2nd Peter. The differences are between 1st and 2nd Peter and the rest of the New Testament. But what you see is that Peter uses this same style, this same hapax legomena, 
And that gives credibility to the idea that the original author, the original person who said these things was the same person. Now, the more familiar you become with this language that only Peter uses, the more you discover that that same language is used in the book of Acts when Peter is cited specifically during his speech on the day of Pentecost, giving greater credibility to the idea that both 1st and 2nd Peter are written by the exact same person who preached on the day of Pentecost. Both of these books contain this unusual salutation. They both say, grace and peace be yours in abundance, those exact words. Well, that implies that it's the same person who said it both times. Chances are, if it was a Gnostic writing, he wouldn't have paid such close attention to the way that Peter began the first letter and wouldn't have copied that identical greeting. Second Peter also reflects the unique vocabulary of Peter's sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts. One of the best examples is the way that he uses the verb that is translated to punish. That is only found in Acts 4.21, but it's found again in 2 Peter 2.9. Same word, same distinction, same Peter. So even though the differences exist between 1 and 2 Peter, the frequent use of these very singular words and the unique vocabulary shared by both books and the strong resemblance between the words of 2 Peter and the words in Peter's sermon recorded in the book of Acts, all argue for Petrine authorship. Are you bored yet? Okay. Still, skeptical scholars continue to try to deny 2 Peter to this very day. Let's talk about what we do find in the book. In the book, the author says that he is Simon Peter, names himself by name, but then says that he stood with John and James as the unique eyewitness of Christ's transfiguration. Okay, well, that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration where we know that Peter, John, and James stood. This same Peter who wrote this particular epistle refers in chapter 3 to the previous letter that he wrote. If you go to chapter 3, verse 1, it says this is now, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. If that first letter is indeed 1 Peter, well, then we're talking about the same person. Now, this is really, really important because in 1 Peter, Peter defines and identifies the audience that he's writing to. He's already told us he's writing to the diaspora that he is writing to the scattered Jews that are outside Jerusalem. He's not writing to a specifically Gentile audience. He's not writing to you and I specifically. He's writing to scattered Jews who are also believers in Christ, but who have all of that background in the Old Testament, in the covenants, in Moses. They've got all that, which is why the language in 1 Peter was so specifically Jewish. Well, that very Jewish Language continues in 2 Peter, and it's going to be equally important as we continue studying 2 Peter that we continue to remember the audience that he's writing to, and he identifies them as the same audience. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Again, if that were written by a Gnostic, that seems like a, an either very clever bit of chicanery or a completely random reference to a letter we don't have, or Peter actually wrote it. He says, both in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, in 3.2, he says that he was numbered among the 12. And he also says in 2 Peter 3.15 that he's familiar with Paul, that he knows Paul. He makes reference to Paul and, in fact, seems so intimately knowledgeable of Paul that he even takes the time to say, man, that Paul stuff's hard to read. <laughs> it's tough to understand. That Paul stuff, that's... Which makes sense if you think about it, because Peter and Paul have had a relationship. When Peter came to Galatia, Peter was eating with the Gentiles in Galatia, and then some came from Jerusalem, from James, who was more of a separationist. And when they came to Galatia, Peter dissembled from the Gentiles and acted like he hadn't really been eating with them in order to satisfy those that came from Jerusalem. Paul writes about that, tells us that whole story, and says, and I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed, because he was acting hypocritically. 
He was acting and eating among the Gentiles like there was no difference. But then when the Jerusalem people came, he decided, oh, I should act like them and acted like, oh, no, I have nothing to do with those Gentiles. Well, that was hypocritical. Paul withstood him to his face. Peter writes his letter. Peter says, man, that Paul stuff. So you can see the actual relationship that's going on between the two of them. Peter had heard the manner of his own death. We read about that, that Peter, at the end of the book of John, had an encounter directly with Jesus. It was Peter, at the end of John, who, who said to the other apostles, well, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. They've been fishing all night. They've caught nothing. Jesus is standing on the shore, kind of mocking them and saying, brethren, have you caught anything? And they say, no, nothing. And we've been fishing all night. He says, well, if you throw your net out the other side, you'll catch something. And they say, well, okay, at your say-so. They throw the net out the other side. They catch so many fish that the nets break as they're dragging it to the shore. So Jesus is in charge of fish. And then Peter realizes it's the Lord. He even says it to the others. He takes off his outer robe. He leaps into the water. He swims to the shore. Jesus is sitting on the shore frying up fish. So fish was never the issue. Jesus has fish. He's cooking fish. While Peter is there with Jesus, they have a conversation. Jesus had said to Peter three times, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. That night, as Jesus goes through his trumped-up trial, as they're preparing to take him away in the morning and nail him to a cross, Peter is watching the proceedings. Three different people approach him. Three times he does exactly what Jesus said. He ends up swearing like a fisherman and denying that he even knows Jesus. Right after he does it the third time, sure enough, the rooster crows. Sure enough, just like Jesus predicted. Okay, now there's a problem. Jesus has died. Jesus has gone to the Father. All of these things have occurred, and Peter... The last thing he has done in his Christian relationship is deny Jesus three times. And he can't get to where Jesus is. Peter can't make it okay again. So what happens? Jesus comes to him. Jesus shows up and Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Now the third time, and I don't want to delve on this too much but the third time Jesus actually changes the Greek word that he uses you know that there are two Greek words there's actually three Greek words for the word love there's agape sacrificial love there's phileo and there is also eros which you don't find anywhere in the New Testament it's the word that we get erotic love that kind of thing from and so those are all part of the Greek language. Well, when Jesus had the conversation with Peter, he said to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you sacrificially love me? And Peter answered, you know that I phileo you. And so the second time Jesus, after saying, okay, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. The second time Jesus says to him, do you agape me? Peter says, you know that I phileo you. The third time, Jesus says to him, do you phileo me? He kind of came down to where Peter was. And Peter wept and said, you know that I do phileo you. So after his three denials, Jesus comes to him and gives him the opportunity to three times get his commission, which is, yes, I do love you. And his commission is feed my sheep. At the very end of the book of John, after having established the relationship with Peter again, after having given Peter the opportunity to repent of his previous denials of Jesus, at that point Jesus says, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to go places you don't want to go. People are going to bind you up and take you where you don't want to go. You're going to die a death you don't want to die. That's what you're going to do. In other words, Jesus said, you are, in fact, going to love me sacrificially. You are, in fact, going to sacrifice your life because of me. Well, Peter heard him say that, and John, who wrote the story, says, and repeats all that for us, says that Peter then turns, looks at John, and says, well, what about him? <laughs> Typical Peter. 
Mr. Sandal in mouth. Jesus says to him some of the best advice you'll find anywhere in the Gospels. Jesus replies to him, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay, that's really good direction for all of us across the board as we're walking through our lives. It's so easy to look at somebody else and say, but what about him? Is that guy doing okay? Is that guy saved or not? What, he got a new car. What, his life's going good. Why do I have to be sick? It's so easy for us to look horizontally and think, well, what about them, Jesus? Well, Jesus' answer is, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay, Peter knows all that. Peter's history is all that. Peter brings that up in 2 Peter. Now, I only went through that entire exercise to say that would be a really odd thing for some Gnostic fake trying to write a fake epistle and give it Peter's fake name. It'd be odd for him to know those intimate details. And so all of that is internal evidence that leads us to believe, conclude, that Second Peter is actually from the Apostle Peter and belongs in the canon. Do you get the argument now? Okay, good. Now, as we go through Second Peter, you're also going to see direct correlations to the book of Jude. There are some parts of Second Peter that are just identical to what's going on in the book of Jude. And the early church councils didn't object to Jude, but there has been a great deal of controversy and argument about who wrote first. Did Peter write it first and then Jude quotes him? Did Jude write it first and then Peter quotes him? But more importantly, if it's true that Jude ended up quoting from Peter, why would Jude, who is the brother of Jesus, who knows the 12 apostles, why would he quote a Gnostic source if it was a Gnostic source? So that's another one of the arguments that people use for the canonicity of 2 Peter. All that being the case, I think we can dive right into 2 Peter. Yeah? Yes. You with me? Yes. Okay. Yes, sir. Using the word Gnostic in the pejorative, I take it. Yes, during the third century in particular, there was a lot of Gnostic writing that was um, trying to influence or recreate this growing Christianity, but those letters were written by people who didn't have direct contact with Jesus. They didn't hear Jesus preach. They didn't walk and talk with Jesus, so they attempted to give their theological constructions credibility by saying that it was from Matthew or it was from Peter or it was from one of the apostles. But you can look at what they said and you can pretty quickly realize that, okay, that's not a valid apostolic teaching. And unless it's got an apostolic pedigree, let me tell you what I mean by apostolic pedigree. When you see some of the earliest church writers like Polycarp, or Arrhenius. Okay, they were actually disciples of John. The things that Arrhenius and Polycarp said they received right from John actually have a pedigree because you can trace who held on to that information. In legal circles, they talk about protecting the evidence and the, there's some particular word. Does anybody know the word? Any cops in the room? I didn't do it. Any... Chain of, chain of evidence. There's a lawyer in the room. My lawyer. So there's a chain of evidence in legal circles. The same thing when you're talking about New Testament books. There has to be the chain of evidence that traces it back to the actual apostle. And that can be done by seeing how early church writers made direct reference to them. That can be done through comparing it with other scriptures that we know came directly from them by the internal evidence. So the Gnostic scripture just doesn't have stuff like that. For instance, uh, the Gnostic book of Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas. There are some people who have been trying to build up the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas because they say, well, the Gospel of Thomas was a book that was purposefully hidden from the church because it's too female-friendly. It, it advances the idea of women apostles 
and the early church didn't like that idea, so they suppressed that book. But now you ought to know that book, because if it's legitimate, then the church has been keeping women down for 2,000 years. So there's the argument in favor of reading and accepting the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, you want to know the truth? The Gospel of Thomas also says there are no women in heaven. Okay? It says that women who are saved become men in heaven. Okay, that would not be apostolic teaching. Get that? So people would come across stuff like that and say, okay, first off, it doesn't have the chain of evidence. There's no way to trace this back to Thomas. And secondly, the theology is whack. You're not going to find that exact term in intellectual books, but the theology is wrong, and therefore we can say this was written by the Gnostics. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer your question? So yeah, I am kind of using it pejoratively, but I'm trying to draw a distinction between genuine, canonical, apostolic New Testament books and all that other stuff. Okay, First Peter. Okay, Second Peter. <laughs> Man, we went through First Peter quick. Second Peter, one one. Right away, he identifies himself. Simon Peter, a bondservant, that is the word slave, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent one. He identifies himself immediately as a bondservant of Jesus Christ who has been sent by Jesus Christ. So he's claiming right away that he has apostolic authority. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now, for the next several verses, we're going to see Peter get really, really Calvinistic. He's going to get, really, did I get a woo-hoo out of that? Is that what happened? We're going to see Peter get real sovereign gracie. But he's not going to take the time to spell out the theology. He's not going to rewrite what Paul has written in Ephesians 1. In fact, what you're going to see is that he just assumes that everybody he's writing to, all these believers, all already know and believe this theology. This theology of God's grace being the way that people get saved that this is God's enterprise and that God in his sovereignty has already given you everything necessary for your eternal life. God has already accomplished everything necessary to pay your sin debt and the righteousness of Christ is going to be imputed to you. He doesn't explain it, he assumes it. And then in his hellos, in his introduction, at the beginning of the letter, He just launches right into it and says, I'm writing to those who have received the same faith I have. See, that's an assumption. Where did the faith come from? Well, we know that the writer of Hebrews, also a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, he says, chapter 12, that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Actually, the word our isn't in the original Greek text. He is the author and the finisher of faith. In other words, wherever you find faith, Jesus authored it, and Jesus completes it. He finishes it. You know that Paul writes the same thing. You know that Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that faith, that grace, that salvation is all not of yourself, a gift of God, and not of works. So as you continue looking through the New Testament, you won't find anywhere where anybody says, ever, once, ever says, faith is something you stir up in yourself, so get busy. It doesn't exist. It's not in there. The very common way that faith is taught in the modern church, you can't find anywhere in the New Testament. The people who say, and this is exactly what Tom and I were taught out in California, the people who say, uh, God's got a batting average. That's the way we were told it. All you do is you look at the way God has been faithful to his word, and then you take the, this is a quote, leap of faith, where you throw yourself onto Jesus, 
you accept him as your Lord and Savior, and you exercise your own faith in him because you've seen the batting average and you believe that you can trust him. So faith is something that you generate in yourself, and then you cast your faith onto Jesus. That's the way it's taught all the time. In the health, wealth, prosperity, word of faith movement that's out there and so popular today, they say that if you rev up enough of your own faith, if you exercise enough faith that you can obligate God to do things for you, you can obligate Christ to save you, you can obligate God to send you the Holy Spirit, and in fact, he can and he will send his angels to make you wealthy and make you healthy and make your kids better looking and you'll run faster and you'll jump higher if, if you'll just exercise your faith. Okay, you don't find anything like that in the Bible. Nowhere. It just doesn't exist. It's creative. It's just not right. Instead, what you find everywhere, and check me on this, everywhere that you find any reference to where faith comes from, every time God is the author of it. Every time in the New Testament. And so Peter, knowing all that, can say he's writing to people who have received the same faith that he's received. It isn't something they stirred up. It's something that they were given. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How'd you get it? You received it from God and Christ. That's where it comes from. Now, Peter, again, doesn't spell out all the details. He doesn't tell us how that works. He doesn't give us the theological background. He just simply states it as a given. This is just axiomatic, that if you have faith in God, in Christ, that is a gift that was given to you because God, in his sovereignty, decided to save you. Here's what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I find that fascinating. Grace. What does the word grace mean? Unmerited favor. Okay, we've got some Boy Scouts in the room. The Boy Scouts get merit badges. How do they get those badges? Well, they don't do anything at all. They just rush in and say, I'd like those badges, please. <laughs> no, they actually do stuff to merit it. Okay, well, that's why my daughter said it is unmerited favor. It is unearned kindness from God. Just the same way that God is merciful in not giving you what you do deserve. If God gave you what you deserve, you deserve wrath and hell. Amen. You are intrinsically a sinner. You're a sinner in thought, word, and deed. And if God were fair, he would have already judged you. You'd already be in hell. But mercifully, God has not given you what you do deserve. Graciously, he has already given you the things you don't deserve. He has given you unmerited kindness and then the word peace we've talked about this word peace several times here irene what it means is the ceasing of againstness you in your sinfulness you in your depravity are the exact diametrical opposite of god in his holiness god is righteous god is holy god lives in a light that no man approaches that's high, holy God, and then there's you. Now, how are you, the worm, the maggot, how are you going to get to that ineffable God? How are you going to do that? Well, it has to be a matter of somebody stopping the againstness between you and him. You are naturally his enemy. You are naturally opposed to all things that are godly. You are naturally chasing after the course of this world. You are naturally following after the lusts of your flesh. And the Bible says you cannot do anything to please God. Oh, even worse. Not only am I bad enough, I can't do anything to please him. Okay, so somebody has to stop the fight. 
something has to stop the againstness between you and God. Well, you can't do it. So God did it. God put down his gloves and quit fighting. God sent his son and his son's perfect, complete sacrifice is the complete redemption for how bad and evil and sinful you are. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. All of that was done by God. You didn't do any of that. And in so doing, he finally brought peace between you and him. So God accomplished the peace, and he did it by his grace. And so both Paul and Peter say, grace and peace to you. Now, it would be enough for somebody like me to think, I've already got grace and peace with God. This is really good news. I went through most of my religious life being beat up by religion. I went through most of my religious life with preachers standing in pulpits screaming at me from Sinai and just telling me how wrong I was and how bad I was and cut your hair. And Listen. You bunch of sarcastic people. I spent most of my religious life believing that God still was holding me under the law and that God just couldn't wait for me to do something wrong so that he could condemn me. That's the way religion was taught to me. And when I heard grace and peace for the first time, when I heard that God accomplished everything necessary for my life here and my eternal life to come, when I heard that God was no longer angry at me and that I had peace with him because of his magnificent love and grace, that was overwhelming to me. And I would have been happy to just say, grace and peace? I got it. That's great. I got grace and peace. That's good. Look at what Peter says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Oh, even more. I get more grace and peace. I want more grace and peace. And you know how the more grace and peace comes? How is it multiplied to you? In the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. See, you can find out haphazardly even the basics of Christianity. You can find out that Jesus came to the planet and he died and he raised again and he went to heaven. You can find that out. You can find that out by turning on the TV, go around the internet, you can find that out. But that's not going to give you everything you need to really have peace, to really have it settled in your head, to really know about the grace of God and everything that Christ has accomplished for you. The more that you learn about God, the more that you learn about Christ, The more that you understand the Bible and the way it works, the way you understand the history of God's dealing with his chosen people, the more that you understand that he's got history in control and that it's going to wrap up exactly the way he said it's going to wrap up and that there is a new heaven and a new earth, that there is a new Jerusalem, the more you're going to have something you can look forward to, the more you're going to have hope, and the more the grace of God is going to overwhelm you, and the more you're going to be able to put your head down on your pillow at night and sleep because you have peace. And I didn't have peace for a long time. I went through a big portion of my life constantly nervous that God was out to get me. And you know what the difference is? I learned. I had knowledge. And as I learned what the Bible said, I found out that all the religion that had been imposed on me was wrong. It wasn't biblical. It's not what the Bible says. It was another way for men to impose their opinions on me, but it wasn't biblical. So now I have peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He continues, seeing that his divine power. Okay, what is God's divine power? Define God's divine power. What are the limits to God's divine power? No limits. 
no limits, unlimited power. That's why we use the word omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. That's why we use the word sovereign, because we don't have a better word than that, the one who's in charge of everything. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. See that sentence? Peter's still just saying hi. <laughs> and he's already launched into God by his sovereignty has granted us, given us, gifted us with everything necessary for life and godliness. Amen. Where does your godliness come from? Where do the good works come from? The good works that he has foreordained that we should walk in. Where does our life come from? Even the sustaining of our life. What about our eternal life? It's zoe is the word in the Greek. It means that. Not only life here, but life everlasting. Life to come. Who's in charge of all that? God's in charge of that. And how does it get to you? He has to grant you to have it. The same way that he granted you to have faith in the finished work of his son. Why? Because he's in charge of all of it from beginning to end. He's in charge of who it is that's going to believe and how it is that they're going to believe and the content of what they're going to believe. And he's going to supply them with the faith, with the perseverance, with the confidence, with the hope, with the grace, with the peace, so that he's going to get them all the way from here all the way to their eternal home because it's been granted to them to have everything that has to do with life and godliness. They've been regenerated, but they've been, if you don't mind me saying it this way, they've been everythinged. <laughs> Whatever it is they need. You need redemption. Okay, well, he did it. He did the redemptive work. He sent his son. You need sanctification. Okay, but he did that. You need godliness in life. You need good works. You need, well, whatever it is you need, he did it. That's Peter's point. Whatever you need to get from here to your eternal home, he did it. He accomplished it. He granted it to you. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I don't care where else you go. I don't care what else you do today or for the rest of your life. I don't care what stupid thing you find to involve yourself in for the rest of your days. That right there is the best news you're ever going to hear in your stupid little life. Amen. Right there. God granted us by his sovereignty, by his divine power, he granted to us Everything necessary for life and godliness. Yes. Doesn't get better than that. Oh, by the way, let me ask from a theological standpoint. If God has already granted to you everything necessary for life and godliness, what do you got to add? Nothing. What do you got to do? What's he waiting for you to do? Do your part and then I'll do mine. He's not waiting for any of that. He's doing it because of grace. He's doing it because of mercy. And he's doing it, never forget this, he's doing it so that his son ends up having a name that is above every name. So that his son gets all the glory eternally. So that we stand as trophies of his grace in heaven eternally. So that he can point at us and say, look what I did. I saved the unsavable. I saved the wretched. I saved the unlovable. And I accomplished it by my grace, by my mercy, and by my power. And never forget, it took power to save somebody like Kellen. Amen. Kellen amended. Good. It took power to do that. It took authority. It took sovereignty. God did not accidentally save Kellen. God did not just wake up one day, trip over an ottoman and go, whoops, Kellen got saved. God did it on purpose, wrote his name down before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life so that 
he could then direct Kellen's life through all the steps of his life so that when Kellen leaves this planet, he's going to end up in God's eternal presence and God's going to say, I knew you were going to be here because I wrote your name down and then I exercised my almighty power to supply you with everything necessary for your life and for your godliness to get you to this place. My grace is going to cover your sins and my son is your complete savior. And so we're not going to talk about your sin. We're not going to talk about anything bad you ever did. I'm going to put my son's righteousness on your account and I'm going to look at you the same way that I've looked at my son whom I've ever loved. Uh, I did all that. That's power. That's my point. That's power. That's authority. It is the unspeakable love of God in Christ. Okay, so it's, it's not over. He's doing good so far. Would you agree Peter's doing good so far? Yes. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Wow, that's sovereign. Where do we get this knowledge? Where do we get this grace and this peace? Where do we get this life and all this godliness that he's granted to us? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. The only reason that God is doing anything at all with Josiah, the only reason is for his glory. He's not doing it because there was something in Josiah that he looked down and saw Josiah and thought, man, I got to get this guy because it wouldn't be heaven without him. I got to bring that guy right to me immediately. No, he did it because he realized that Josiah was that bad and that he was that glorified in saving somebody like Josiah. Do you disagree? No. Okay, good. Look at the language again. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Okay, so now we're talking about the excellence of God. Hang on to that. He's going to say in a moment, Now that you know all this about yourself, now that you know that God has saved you since before the foundation of the world, now that you know it's his grace and peace, now that you know all of this stuff, now you should act like it. And in the the characteristics that he lists, he's going to use that word again. And he's going to say, now, to your moral character, you add excellence. So he's saying God is excellent, therefore you ought to represent God in an excellent way. The characteristics of God should be obvious in the way that they flow through you and the way that you live your life. In other words, the first part of Peter is a perfect example of the indicative and the imperative. We talk about it all the time here at GCA. For those of you who are visiting who don't know what I'm talking about, Jim, what are you talking about? Indicative imperative. Indicative, what you are. Imperative, what you do. Basic English. Uh, The vast majority of religion in the world, not just Christianity, way too much of Christianity, but every religion in the world says, if you want to be this, You have to do this. They put the imperative first. Do stuff, and then you get stuff. In other words, kill the infidels, then you get your 70 virgins. That's the most obvious example. Way too much Christianity says that. If you want to go to heaven, do good works. Do good works, you get the reward, whatever the reward is. That's the way that all religion on the planet works. Paul never does that. Peter never does that. The New Testament never does that. The New Testament always starts with the indicative. It always starts with who you are. Who are you? You are the saved. You are the redeemed. You are the blood-bought. You are the elect of God. Knowing that about yourself, now do this. Knowing that's what God has done by his almighty power to save you, act like this. 
So throughout the New Testament, you always see the indicative first, which becomes the inspiration for the imperative. Rather than saying, here's your imperative, you've got the power, go do it. Instead, it's God has already done it all. Now, knowing that God has done it all, how should you act? So that's what Peter's going to do. After having said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Okay, this gets kind of complicated, but hang with me for a minute, and I think you're going to see it. What promises is Peter talking about, given the audience he's writing to? His um, Abrahamic promises? Everything in the Old Testament. Everything that's already been written, everything that's been prophesied, everything that's been promised to Israel. The problem, I think, is that we get this 21st century Gentile mindset sometimes when we read the New Testament, where we look at the promises and we kind of truncate them to just those promises that apply directly to us. But the reality is he's writing to an audience that has thousands of years of promises from God via the prophets that are all written down in the the Old Testament. And don't forget that when Peter is writing this letter, the New Testament doesn't exist. He's just writing a letter. He's writing a commentary about the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the only scripture they have. That's the scripture that Paul's talking about when he says all scripture is God-breathed. It's all breathed out by God, proved by its prophecies. And so Peter is saying in there, there are all of these promises. And God is keeping those promises for by these, that is a direct reference to his own glory and his own excellence. By God's own glory and his own excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by those promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. Wow Wow is right. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying as you look through the Old Testament, there's all these passages that have to do with Messiah to come. There's all these promises to Israel and the restoration of Israel, but they all center around the reality that Messiah is coming. All of that is in the Old Testament. The promise of a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is all promises not only having to do with Israel, but all centered on the reality that the Messiah is coming. I want to see the earth when it's like that. Me too. For by these, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by those promises, we might become partakers of the divine nature. The only way that we were ever going to partake of the divine nature was going to be if God did everything he promised to do in the Old Testament. And because he actually did do it, because he did send his son, because his son did die and rise again, because his son did make the sacrifice at the throne room of God, Because his son did say he's going to be back and he's going to reestablish the new Jerusalem. Because of all those promises that you find in the Old Testament, God has granted to us not only everything necessary for our life and our godliness, but he's given us everything necessary so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Those are promises from God. And only a sovereign God, only a holy God and a righteous God, only an all-powerful God can make promises like that and expect that they're going to come true because he's the one who's going to make sure that they do come true. This is my daughter. Hi. For everybody who wants to meet my daughter. Hi. There were a few times as she was growing up that I made determinations about her life for her. Like... Yes, you are going to school, or no, you cannot have cookies before dinner. 
Oh, or really, you're wearing that? Okay, why was I able to impose my will on my daughter when she was small? I had all the power. She didn't have the power. Because I had the power, I could impose my will on her. Okay, God is all-powerful. You are how much power? None. You have no power at all. God himself gives himself the positive name El Shaddai. God all-powerful. If he gives himself the name God Almighty, then he believes that he has all the might, all the power. And then he demonstrates it by doing everything. And so if he has all the power and the might and the authority, how much do you have? You have none. You have zero. So what are the chances that you, with zero power, worm, maggot that you are, what are the chances that you were going to manage to somehow become part of the everlasting, spiritual, heavenly glory that exists out there? It's not going to happen. You're not going to get there. That's my point. The distance between you and glory is so large and your incapability is so severe that there's no way that you're going to get to the point where you actually can obligate God to give you everything that belongs to him. He has to give it to you. He has to grant it to you. And he has to do that by his grace, by his love, by his mercy, by his kindness, by his long suffering, by everything that is God and nothing to do with you. There's just nothing you contribute. There's just nothing you add to it, which is, again, if you ever get this right, this is where the knowledge of God part comes in. If you ever get that right and understand your condition versus his position, if you ever understand your sinfulness and his holiness, and you understand that he has granted to you that you can be a partaker in the divine nature, let me tell you something about your relationship with that God. You're going to worship him. Amen. You're going to get on your face in front of that God. The God who's waiting on me to do something, the God who's saying, I'd like to save you, if you just make me your Lord and Savior, I'm just waiting up, up there wringing his great eternal hands. I sure hope somebody accepts me. I don't know that God. I don't like that God. I don't worship that God because that God doesn't deserve to be worshipped. He's waiting on me. And what am I? Little bald-headed preacher down in Smyrna, Tennessee. He's waiting on me. No, the real God, the divine God, the sovereign God, the powerful God, in order for you to be in his presence, has to grant you everything necessary for your life and your godliness, and he has to grant you that you could become a partaker in his divine nature. And oh, bless God, he does it. He does it for some people, and then he gives them that like precious faith, and then he counts that faith for righteousness. Amazing. The faith he grants to you, he then says, oh, oh, you have faith in me? I, I will give you righteousness in exchange for that. I, I didn't do any of this. Why? Because as Peter said, he granted you everything, everything, everything necessary for your life and godliness. He granted you to become a partaker of the divine nature. Look at the last phrase, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. That's the leading inspiration for what goes on in this world. Advertising knows that. Watch advertising someday. Look at, look at billboards, advertising on the TV. It's all appealing to human lust, human desire. Human, and it starts by making you afraid that there's something wrong with you. And then moves directly into, and we have the solution. You know, you've got halitosis, or you've got, you've got flakes on your shoulders, and everybody can see it. Oh, you know, you're a social pariah. But we've got head and shoulders, so you're okay. I mean, all of advertising is, is based on human ego and lust, desire. The desire for you to have something that you don't have. That lustfulness that you have naturally in your flesh to protect yourself above all other things to find 
quiet and peace and to escape anything that's going to be hard or difficult or painful. Escape the pain, find the comfort. That's the basic psychology of human beings. That is this world of lust, which Paul describes as being in league with the prince of the power of the air. Why do you think he even has that name, the prince of the power of the air? Because he's in charge down here. The rulers of the darkness of this world. That's what Paul says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. Spiritual wickedness in high places. The rulers of the darkness of this world. When you read about what God thinks of this planet, he doesn't think this is a great place that's doing fine. He doesn't look on planet Earth and go, that's a handful of aces right there. Everything's going good down there. No, he even said there's even weeds and thistles proving that the plant life on the planet is corrupted. Plant life is killing each other. Animals are killing each other. Human beings are killing each other. We're just plain corrupt because of our lusts. And we, because we are partakers of the divine nature, have escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Again, good, good news. Now, verse 5, now, for this very reason, okay, now Peter's finally gotten to the point of, okay, now I said all that about you being saved by the divinity of God and by the power of God and by the will and the grace and the peace of God. You know all that stuff? Now, for this very reason, then applying all diligence, which means get busy, think about it, to your faith, supply or add moral excellence. And then he's going to list how he wants us to live. That's the introduction to 2 Peter. I just wanted to stop with the really, really sovereign gracie parts and leave you with that in your head. Hang on to that for two weeks. David Morris will be here next week. And then in two weeks, we will get to now knowing all that. How should you act? How should you behave? Knowing that God has done all this. All right? All right. I shudder to ask. Any questions? Yes, sir. I know we assume it, but that he did all of that, gave us everything, while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. And the Bible doesn't just say we were sinners while he did all that for us. It says we were enemies of God. And he did that for us anyway. That's love right there. That's grace right there. I was at my absolute worst when he revealed himself to me, drew me to him. I can't take any credit for the fact that I'm standing here right now or that I'm Christian right now and that I can't escape it. I can't take any credit for it because I was doing my dead level best to make him hate me. And, and he loved me instead. So. We were in rebellion and he took us anyway. We were in rebellion and he took us anyway. That's exactly right. Because who wasn't in rebellion? Anything else? No? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.